right. So good to um, see all of you. And um, just wanted to, uh, as the, the year's coming to an end as well, just wanted to um, remind you and encourage you um, to um, uh, finish your giving. And um, at, by the end of the year, I know some of you do that uh, for your taxes and so on. So. Um, yeah, you know, it would help obviously a lot. And so for some of you are maybe catching up or you, you have some um, extra opportunity to do so, I want to encourage you to do that. You know, our vision is to reach um, the Orange County area with the gospel. And uh, we want to, we want to uh, continue in, in the work that we're doing. And so I want to encourage you to do that. And, you know, doing a multi-site church, um, having uh, multiple um, church, it's almost like two churches, two youth groups, two VBSs, children's ministries, um, and so on and so forth. Uh, is is quite a bit of work, and it takes resources. And so, uh, for the next couple of weeks, if you would consider that and think about it and pray about it as you uh, prepare, uh, I want to just encourage you to do that um, as we continue our our mission to go and be a church for all people. Um, today we read a story and. Uh, this might sound somewhat familiar. You know, back in those days, uh, a, a parents had children for the sake of running the family business. I mean, um, there were no real options. You don't go and choose your own career like we do now. You go and um, you are, parents would have children, and if they would have a lot of children, they would go work, and they would have a big workforce, and it was a blessing to have a lot of children. And they would go and work in the family business, and it was the thing that you did back in those days. And so when we read this story, it's a simple story, but the father has two sons. The father owns a vineyard. Um, these sons, if they're going to be useful, they have to go work in the vineyard. They have to go and take care of the grapes and, and so on and so forth. And he tells them to go, and there's two kids. And maybe if you have a sibling, you kind of grew up this way. This is somewhat common. One is the one that always says yes and is seems responsible. The other one's the black sheep of the family, um, you know, a late bloomer in a way. And so this is what's happening here. And he says, I want you to go. I want you to go and um, work. And the, the first one says, no, I don't want to go. Like, I have bigger plans. I have better things on my mind. I'm not going to go. So he doesn't go. But later he changes his mind and he shows up for work and he works. The second son says, okay, I'll go. Yeah, sure, I'll go. And, and maybe you know someone like this who always says yes but never follows through. And then he changes his mind and he never shows up. And he says, well, what do you think? Jesus starts with that question. What do you think? Which one's more acceptable? Which one did the will of God? Obviously, it's the one who maybe said no in the beginning but changed his mind and showed up and was productive and did the will of the Father. Now, this story, it's a simple story that many people, especially in the days of Jesus, would connect with. But it is, they, they, both sons represent two different groups of people. And I want us to um, think about this a little bit. You know, in chapter 21, the chief priests, the Pharisees, the, the people who worked in the temple, the religious leaders are mentioned, and he is dialoguing with them as he's coming to the end of his earthly ministry here. Um, and so... You have on one side of the spectrum the religious, right? And if you've been in church, you've heard about the Pharisees and the Sadducees and, and the Sanhedrin that made up the collection of the leaders and the chief priests who worked in the temple. So you have this far extreme. And really, on, the, on a social sense, on the furthest other side, 
was the tax collectors and the prostitutes. Now, um, all sociologists would kind of break, sociologists would break up uh, uh, societies in three levels usually, right? You have the upper class, the elite people. You have the middle class, which is kind of, at least in America, it's kind of the bigger, the biggest group. And then you have the lower class, those in poverty. And if you look at uh, Jesus's day, uh, really the shape would not be maybe like in, in, in modern countries, you would, it might be shaped this way with the middle class being the biggest, but really it was shaped more like a, a triangle where the elite was by far a few, and then the middle class was still a few, and then you had a large group of the lower class. And so in the elite, in the first third, you had people who were born into riches, people who were born into um, you know, th these type of families. And so they're just born into it. You know, they're born into, you know, Herod is the dad, and you know, you're just, just gonna continue in this power and money and so on. But also in the elite, you had another group of people, which were these religious leaders, the highly respected leaders. Now, so on the elite level, when you have these elite, um, highly respected, the high priest, the Pharisee of Pharisees, you know, the apostle Paul before he was uh, converted on the road, to, when he was Saul, you know, um, when you have those, here's the difference. And we, we talk about this often, even in our day, right? One, you're born into it. You're just fortunate. You had nothing to do with it, you know, and you heard a lot of rhetoric on this during the uh, election process. Oh, he was born into it. You know, he was given all these things, so you can't credit him. But there's a difference. The religious leaders were not born into it. They worked for it. They earned it. You had to go and give yourself, and you had to be bright. You have to be moral. You have to now have self-control. You have to be smart. And so they earned that spot. So they are, in a sense, more proud than those who earned it, or those who uh, you know, got it from their families because they earned it. So they could always argue, well, you know, you were born with a silver spoon in your mouth. You were born in this way. Well, we have friends like that, that you know, their family is so wealthy, and so they're just born into this. They don't worry about this, you know, versus the one, the self-made person, the one who started from scratch and say, boy, I've earned everything I have. And so this is that far extreme. And then on the other far extreme, the lowest of the classes, you have, let's back up, just the middle class, you have the working people. So you would have the the shepherds, the shop owners, the metal workers, uh, um, carpenters, you know, uh, Jesus was probably in that middle class. You know, they worked. Um, they were just the average people. But in the lower class, you had people who couldn't help themselves. So you had the blind, and you see in the Gospels, they're begging, right? You have um, the orphans, the widows, these people, where life circumstance just fell on them, and they had no choice. You know, and they were handicapped, and they were ill, and often you see they're the ones who end up being the beggars in front of the temple. And, you know, there, there was an assumption, and you see this in the scriptures where they ask, oh, who sinned that he was born this way? Right? There was an assumption that there was a curse in their family, or their parents were at fault. Um, and so they were looked down upon. But they were helpless. They were orphans. They were handicapped. They were born this way. They had bad fortune. But in that same class, there was the bottom of that class was known the sinners. 
And in that category of sinners belonged the prostitutes and tax collectors. And they were looked upon far worse than even the blind and the weak and the poor because these people were born helpless. These people were perfectly healthy. They were perfectly capable. And the tax collectors, what would they do? We know this, right? They, they would go and collect on behalf of Rome, and they would go and uh, skim off the top as much as they wanted. And so they were stealing from their own people. People had an emotion towards them, like, you are a traitor. You are a traitor. You're taking from us to give to Rome, and you're keeping so much for yourself. So they were looked upon as really scum of society. And alongside of them were the prostitutes. Not only is, is she sinning, but now she is using her body to sin and making someone else sin. And she is now gathering money in, that, in those means. And so they were looked upon as the bottom. And so it is a shock when you read the Gospels. And in the genealogy, there's a, a prostitute there. Or Jesus is meeting a woman by the well who's had five husbands. Or he is now talking with a tax collector. You remember the story of Zacchaeus in Luke. Zacchaeus has to climb a tree because he's smaller in stature. He can't see and he climbs. And the Bible tells us in, in Luke that um, Luke 19.5 that he, um, Jesus calls him and he's described as a tax collector. Not only that, but he was rich. What, what that meant, he was a big crook. Like he stole from so many people. So people hated him even more. Right? He was... Um, someone who stole, and he had a bunch. And so he stole from a lot of people. So when Zacchaeus is called by Jesus, and Jesus tells him in Luke 19, I'm going to go into your home. And that was a shock for everyone, right? Everyone said, oh my gosh, how could he go to his house? How could he be friends with him? How can he hang out with him? Because not only is he in the lowest, but he's rich. He became rich off of us. He's a big-time con artist. He's a crook. And so Jesus says, now let me connect these two, the highest and the lowest, let me explain their difference. The lowest, they, re, they change their minds and they believe, and they get to go to the kingdom of God. The highest, the religious leaders, they're rejected because they reject God. Um, you know, in Matthew 5, in the beginning of the Beatitudes, Jesus starts by saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Um, those who are humble. Now, you think about these two groups of people. Who are the poor in spirit? It's really, you can imagine, the tax collector who has all this guilt. He walks around society, and everyone's looking down, spitting on him, hating him. The prostitute who cannot go show her face who cannot go to the well when the other women are there because of what they would think, and she has to go at noon when no one's around. These people now are the poor in spirit. So we have to be very careful. This is not those who, are, those who give to the poor. And as we're doing Be Generous, as we're giving, and as many of you are doing so good, it's easy, and, and I think the uh, church in America does this often. You come and you hear a, a list Oh, you need to do A, B, and C. And you come and you say, well, I do A, B, and C. And I feel pretty good. And sometimes the message is geared to make everyone feel pretty good. If you do A, B, and C, you're pretty good. And everyone walks away and says, I feel pretty good. But really, that's, in essence, the opposite of the gospel. And we have to be very careful that it's not those who help the poor. Not those who care for the poor, but those who are poor in spirit themselves. I have to go to God as a beggar, as a sinner, as someone who is utterly broken, 
and understand the gravity of my sin and the grandeur of the gospel. And so we understand it in this way. Um, he calls us to be humble. And this is, these are the two things that they did, that the prostitutes and the tax collectors did, that the elite didn't, which was to change their mind and to believe in him. Change their mind and believe. Now, when, now as I share these descriptions of um, how a sociologist might look at these people, don't we, don't we really look like the elitist more than the sinners? I mean, don't we? You know, we're proud of the things we do. We're proud of our hobbies and our careers and the accomplishment of our children and, you know, uh, the, the things that we've done and our walls have all of our accomplishments and degrees and plaques and we have all these things. We have so much to lose. And often it is very easy for us, a church in Orange County, in Irvine, to say, hey, isn't this what we are like? And we feel pretty good as we gather together. But yet we, in our hearts, are a lot more like the tax collector and the prostitute, that we have nothing to offer God. We have nothing to come to him with. And we have to come poor in spirit. And boy, we need to hear this. We need to uh, grasp this because we can go to church and learn techniques on how to deal with this and learn techniques on how to be a good mom or how to, and you learn those types of nice techniques, but it's not really the essence in the gospel. We have to learn what the gospel is. And so these people changed their minds. The religious didn't because they had so much to lose. Look in your Bible, verse 29, he's talking about the son. He said, this is a good son. I will not, but after he changed his mind and went. Verse 32, uh, this is when John the Baptist preached, uh, came to you in the way of righteousness. You did not believe, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed. And even when you saw, you did not afterward change your mind. So that phrase is used twice, change your mind, change your mind. It uh, could be translated another way, repent. Uh, sometimes we think of repent as a a religious word you know I need to go to confession or I need to go and have a, a technique or I need to pray to someone to repent I got caught I should repent and often we are like a little child that gets caught for doing something bad and uh, fighting with someone and mom grabs you know the older brother and says say sorry to the younger one and uh, because I got caught they cry and they say I'm sorry but you know it, it's so much more than that the word repent uh, in the original language, metanoia, right? Meta is after, afterwards. Noia is the mind. And so it's the mind after it's been changed. And so it's a changing of the mind and it's changed. Something has changed. It's the mindset after the change, right? The place you end up after the change. Uh, R.C. Sproul says it's a significant changing of the mind. Wayne Grudem in his uh, systematic theology says, Repentance is a heartfelt sorrow for sin, a renouncing of it, and a sincere commitment to forsake it and walk in obedience. So it's a change, it's a sorrow, and then we act different. The son who was good um, said he won't go. He had a change of mind, and it wasn't just, oh, I, I should have done this, regret and guilt. No, but he actually works. He changes, and so that's what we see here. Um, and he tells the religious leaders, right, in verse 32, you should have repented. You didn't change your mind. And the word you there is in the plural. He's talking to you class of people. You elitist. 
You who have all the answers and you have all the things that you need. You who are self-sufficient. You elitist. You need to change your mind. You all need to change your mind. You class of people. You morally upright people need to change your mind. Look at those people. Tax collectors and prostitutes. The opposite of you. They change their mind. And so we have to learn to change in this way. Um, scholars have argued that uh, probably the most important figure in Christianity in history um, after the Bible was finished was probably St. Augustine. St. Augustine um, is mentioned that way. He's quoted by John Calvin over 400 times. He was uh, instrumental, um, though it was hundreds of years after, instrumental in the Reformation that had happened. But St. Augustine um, has a story um, in his book, The Confessions, and he, his whole story of how he comes to faith, his repentance, his changing of the mind, is um, very normal in a way. It seems like us. And this is what, what he was like. And I want to share a little bit about his life with us this morning. He was born in <clears throat> 354. Uh, he was born to a mother, Monica, who was a devout Christian, and a father who was a pagan, uh, Patricius, who was a Roman official. And kind of somewhat in a way, it sounds somewhat common. Some of us, are, our mothers are a lot more devout than our fathers, you know, and so on. And our mothers are maybe the spiritual, uh, you know, key and the pillar of our house. Um, and, and he talks about his childhood, and he was gifted in a lot of ways, but one of the ways he was gifted was in speaking. And so he ends up being uh, sent to go study rhetoric and to teach rhetoric and to win arguments. And in those days, rhetoric was considered the top, the best, the greatest uh, skill you could have. And so if you could study and teach and win uh, in an oral argument and convince people, you were looked upon as this is the best that you can do in society. And so he was sent away to go study. And one of the things he talks about his childhood, he says this about his parents. He says, they're only, his parents' only concern, and this sounds so familiar to us. It sounds like it's our lives. The only concern was that I should learn how to make a good speech, how to persuade others by my words. And he talks about, especially his father, he says, he took no trouble to see that I was growing in the sight of God. He didn't care about that. Or whether I was chaste or not. He cared only that I should have a fertile tongue. That's the only thing he cared about. Are you good at this? Can you win at this? This is measurable. He didn't care about the things of God. Um, you know, we, we see some that when it comes to school, you will never miss a day. You will never be tardy. You're going to be perfect. But church, ah, you know, it, it's okay. Um, and, and we see that kind of attitude sometimes. And this is kind of how he grew up. Um, and he goes to study he is sent at the age of 16 to Carthage, which is in North Africa. He goes to study rhetoric, and he goes there. He is gifted, he is smart, and he is now surrounded, and he struggles with sex, and he's surrounded now by so many temptations. And he says some of these things about his uh, experience. At the age of 18, he says, uh, he talks about from a perverted act of will, desire had grown, and when desire is given satisfaction, habit is forged and when habit passes unresisted a compulsive urge sets in and in confessions he says i came to carthage when a, where a cauldron of unholy loves was sizzling and crackling around me and he says that the frenzy gripped me and i surrendered myself entirely to lust 
And the story goes that he meets a woman, and they move in together. She ends up having a, ch a child out of wedlock with him, and, um, and he is going through this. And during his uh, adulthood, as he is called back to teach, as he was so successful in all he does, he gets called back to teach. And um, one of the prayers he said is, God, make me, you know, uh, fill me with chastity, but just not right now. Like, life is too good, just not right now, right? And don't we sometimes say that, God, life is so good, don't take me right now. Um, and, and he says this. Uh, later on in life, in his 30s, he, um, in 386, there's a story of his conversion that's very famous in a little garden in Milan where he is sitting there and he hears a voice of a child, but there is no child inside. And the voice of the child kept saying, take it, read it, take it, read it read it and he sees next to him uh, a piece of scripture there and he opens it up and he takes and he reads and what he reads comes from Romans 13 verse 13 and 14 let us behave decently as in the daytime not in orgies and drunkenness not in sexual immorality and debauchery not in dissension and jealousy but rather clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and it all makes sense. And he has a changing of the mind. He gets baptized. And he lets go his, of his weaknesses um, and his past. And towards the latter part of his life, um, he says this in his famous prayer. You have, talking to God, you have made us for yourself, Lord. Our hearts are restless until they rest in you. And he talks about his experience this way. There is a changing of the mind that helps him. And we have to say, I, I, don't, I, I can't help myself in everything. I'm not good at everything. I need to have a changing of the mind as the tax collector, as the prostitute did it. Imagine for the prostitute or the tax collector, the moment they confessed, imagine the freedom they felt. You mean, like, I don't have to live like this? I'm more than what people think I am. I don't have to live in this. I can work in a different manner. I could change. Imagine the freedom they experience. Um, and the second thing that happens is they believe. And the word believed and believed them is mentioned over and over, right? Verse 32, um, he talks to, you did not believe John the Baptist, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your mind and believe him. So it's believe him. Did you believe him? You know, the tax collectors and prostitutes believed him, but you, uh, the elitist, you didn't believe him. And it's, that is mentioned over and over. The word believe here, um, when we say I believe in God, it's not just to say um, I believe him that he existed. I believe in Jesus. doesn't mean that, oh, I acknowledge that he existed, you know. Um, it's not just simple in that sense. But the word believe, pistuo, the word believe, it means to put my faith in something. It means to have confidence in. Um, it means to now commit to something. And so when you, you remember John 3.16, the same word is used. Right, God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Whoever believes in him. And so I remember when I first you know, thought, read that and thought about that, I thought, oh, so if I just acknowledge that he's there, then I'm safe. Is that what it's saying? But it's so much more than that. You have to trust him with everything. You have to commit. Whoever commits and rests everything on him, whoever leans on him, will now have eternal life. Whoever will not lean on their own intellect and their own abilities and lean on Him to forgive, 
they have eternal life. And that's what we see. So we have to believe. We have to trust. This is a part of salvation that we understand. Um, Henry Nouwen uh, uh, was a uh, uh, famed, and some, some of you know, and maybe I've read his, all of his books and so on, um, uh, was a very well-established and famed professor. He, he taught at Notre Dame. He taught in, uh, in all the, most of the Ivy League schools and all the famous places. And he goes at the uh, latter part of his life, and he spends some time in a community of people um, where it was, they were all mentally handicapped. It was a Christian community. And he goes there as a part of his own journey, and he spends time there. And he realizes, and he talks about this in several of his books, that no one cared who he was and what he wrote and what degrees he had. Like, no one cared. No one's heard of Notre Dame. No one's heard of Harvard. They, they're like, whatever. And they treated him as, a, as an equal. And he comes to his realization there as he spends his years there. Um, and he, he says this, and I want to share what he says. Um, he says, over the years, I have come to realize the greatest trap in our lives is not success, popularity, or power, but self-rejection. Success, popularity, and power can indeed present a great temptation, but their seductive quality often comes from the way they are part of the much larger temptation of self-rejection. When we have come to believe in the voices that call us worthless and unlovable, then success, popularity, and power are easily perceived as attractive solutions. Self-rejection is the greatest enemy of the spiritual life because it contradicts the sacred voice that calls us the beloved. What he's saying here, right, that it is so easy to say, I don't believe uh, in the voice that calls me. I want to measure up by how many, in our culture, likes we get and how many comments we get and how I measure up and where am I ranked in school and where am I ranked in, in the society and how are my kids ranked, you know. And even when they're born, you remember, they, you know, when they weigh your kids, they give you a percentile. I remember when Carissa was born, she's a 90 percentile. I was like, you're predicting her, you know, like GPA, what does that mean? In height, she is better than 90. I remember she was always tall. and she was, She's always 94%, 98%. And I remember walking out proud, but I'm like, I have nothing to be proud of. Like, how does he know? And, um, and he predicted, you know, I remember our pediatrician predicted she, she's going to be 5'6", I could tell. He had this device, and, you know, she's, she's like 5'10". So I'm like, he didn't know, you know, like he didn't know anything. Um, and... Uh, but we, we get so proud of being able to measure up. The elitists love to measure up. The elitists love to compare their toys and their possessions, their careers, and measure things up because they have something to be proud of. The sinners have nothing to bring to the table. What do they bring? The only thing they cling to is the cross. And I want to challenge us today to have this mindset that we could come not as strong, self-righteous people who come and say, God, I have something to offer you, but as people who say, God, I am poor in spirit. Change my mind. Help me to live for you. Help me to believe in you. And could we say the prayer of the Father who came to Jesus with this ailing child, help my unbelief, help my unbelief. And maybe that is our prayer today. Uh, let's bow our heads together. God, we come before you um, 
as sinners, beggars in need of you. But often uh, we approach you like we want to barter something with you and we want to um, show you uh, how worthy we are of you. And God, we are worthy of nothing. You give us everything. So teach us again what it is to be poor in spirit. Teach us what it is to be broken over sin. Humble us again, God, as we look to the cross today. We want to be the one that does your will. Change our minds, Lord. Give us this belief. It's all about you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.